It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. We start today, unusually not in Westminster, but in fact in Northern Ireland, where the big political story is still unfolding, in fact. And Northern Ireland has a history of a lot of decisions being made very late at night. Uh, If you're someone who's covered politics in Northern Ireland, you're quite used to waiting around for long periods of time for news out of big political meetings. And we've had another one of these moments. This time around, it was nearly one o'clock in the morning when the meeting of the Democratic Unionist Party finally said that yes, after two years, they would go back into power sharing. These moments come along actually not that infrequently in Northern Irish politics when you think about it. We have these watershed moments where all of a sudden a political knot seems to be untied and things can move on. There is a lot of optimism now that perhaps power sharing can get back to normal, that the DUP has lifted their blockade. And as I saw Stephen Farry from the Alliance Party, someone we've spoken to a lot on this programme, talking about Northern Ireland being a more hopeful and better place this morning. Not sentiments you hear that often from politicians. Um, Lizzie, I wonder what you've been thinking about when the sort of the perspective from from Westminster and all this. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what it means for Rishi Sunak, of course, someone who originally backed Brexit. And this has been a bit of an Achilles heel for the Brexiters that power sharing hasn't been in place for so long in Northern Ireland. This, if we get terms of the deal that are favourable could actually add to the Windsor framework as a victory for Rishi Sunak. And he can therefore present himself as a cool head, someone who was able to be more pragmatic and get Brexit done, even if it was Boris Johnson's Johnson's slogan. Yeah, indeed. Let's take a listen to what the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, said at the end of that five-hour meeting in the early hours of this morning. I believe that with the faithful delivery of this package of measures, hard work and dedication we will be able to look back on this moment as the defining time when Northern Ireland's place within the Union was safeguarded and our place within the United Kingdom internal market was restored. So that's the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson. Furious preparations now happening in Stormont, we can imagine. I was there 
nearly this time last year actually when at that stage even the executive had been out of business for quite a long time and the ministerial offices are all cordoned off essentially because none of the ministers were able to use them because there was no functioning government so I hope someone's in there doing the dusting this morning. I, I uh, do remember you looking very cold when I saw you <laughs> on the telly. Well let's go to cold old Belfast now for more. Talk to our reporter Olivia Fletcher. She was up late last night covering this story so we're glad that she's up to tell us more about it today. Olivia what do we know about what Jeffrey Donaldson's told his party executive in order to win them over? Yeah, listen, it was a really, really late night last night, so I'm still quite tired. I'm to bear <laughs> with me. But he had basically, Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, had a tough sell, basically. But he managed to get there last night. Um, there's still more details of it to come, but more broadly, what he told his party and what he managed to get basically support for was that there are going to be new legislative measures to restore Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market, ending Northern Ireland automatically having to follow EU rules, and also unfettered access for Northern Ireland goods to get into GB. The reason why this is also important that he managed to say that he could basically secure Northern Ireland's place in the union is because he needed to convince, you know, his party, but also more broadly, just unionists in Northern Ireland, that he could secure unionist place in the UK. And he felt confident that he could do that last night. Olivia, there were reports coming out of this meeting um, via notably a, a loyalist blogger, Jamie Bryson, who was was tweeting out parts of the proceedings. Was the meeting really as chaotic as some of those reports made out? Well, it, it was meant to be a private meeting and I'm sure it wasn't ideal in any respect for Jeffrey's camp in the DUP to have to see all of this come out during a meeting that was meant to be private. Meanwhile, all of us reporters are sat mile down the road in a distillery waiting for Jeffrey Donaldson to show up and we're seeing all of this. So, yes, yeah, certainly not ideal, but the party, the DUP, isn't really that united although he did manage to get the deal across the line some people are going to be really angry some more hardline unionists going to be angry about this deal you know when you walk around belfast you'll see some signs saying you know dup sellout jeffrey donson now has a fresh challenge i guess in trying to make sure that he can bring his party and unionists together you got me wondering what you were drinking in that distillery, Olivia. It sounds a lot more fun than you making up. But let <laughs> you me know, just ask I you. I probably thought we were drunk, but we were just um, delirious because we were so tired. <laughs> let me just ask you, because from the perspective of ordinary people in Northern Ireland, it seems that it must have been incredibly frustrating how uh, disrupted public services have been. So how much and how fast will this deal change the lives of ordinary people living in Northern Ireland? Things could move pretty fast. Um, You know, it looks like maybe at the end of this week or early next week, Stormont could be up and ready as it should be, you know, with ministers in place and a speaker elected. And I guess part of that is in order to try and convince the DUP to go back into government, Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary from Westminster last year, in December offered a 3.3 billion package and that's still on the table and part of that money is going to go towards um, increasing public sector pay. That's really important because Northern Ireland has quite an overweight public sector. There's a large amount of public sector workers in Northern Ireland, partly, you know, an overhang from the troubles. So it's going to be really important for that. But also this is a big signal to businesses and investors that 
there's going to be stability again. So we could see um, more interest there. Um, that might not be as immediate, but certainly we should look out for that as well. But also it's just to say that this time round, there's an acknowledgement that getting Stormont back up and running needs to be sustainable and permanent because time and time again, either the DUP or Sinn Féin have pulled out of government when essentially something comes up that they don't feel like they can support. So there's a recognition that something more stable needs to come along, something more viable and long term. OK, well, I hope you get to squeeze in an app at some stage today. That's our reporter in Belfast, Olivia Fletcher. Thank you. Well, let's get more reaction to this news now with Lord Reg MP, who's former leader of the Ulster Unionist Party and one of the negotiators of the Good Friday Agreement. Reg MP, welcome back to Bloomberg. Uh, great to have you with us. What's, first of all, just your reaction to the news that the DUP has agreed to go back to power sharing? Well, obviously, I'm, t- I'm pleased that the institutions are, are to be re-established. And there are two groups of people, I think, benefit most from that. As your reporter was just saying, uh, public sector workers will now get a pay rise that uh, they should have had a long time ago. And hopefully that would um, alleviate a number of potential industrial action that was being planned for later this month and, and, and into the spring. <clears throat> the second thing is, uh, for those people who are on waiting lists in hospitals, which have been growing dramatically uh, since over the last few years, at least there is perhaps now the opportunity to get a long-term three-year budget for health service so the kind of proper manpower planning. So those are all, and also, as, as was referred to, I would hope we take advantage of the economic potential uh, that this now creates. We have the support of Joe Kennedy III from uh, representing President Biden, and uh, I'm quite sure uh, that we should be able to mount a serious uh, investment uh, opportunity for a, a number of businesses, giving, given our access to the EU and the UK markets. That said, that's very positive, and I, I welcome the changes. Uh, however, I have to say that the um, uh, what has been going on over the last uh, two years has been disgraceful. Um, Mr. Donaldson may have eventually forced his party back, <clears throat> but he should never have uh, brought it out in the first place. Um, on the fundamentals of what his protest was about, number one, the Windsor framework, which was agreed last February by Rishi Sunak, not one syllable of it has been changed. And yet he was attempting to uh, have it uh, rewritten or scrapped in some cases. He set himself seven tests to judge whether things had been met, and they have not been met. Um, he said we, we should have no border in the RSC, but there is a border in the RSC, and that will continue. What the legislation is about is trying to minimise uh, future divergence between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It's not about unravelling what has already happened. And I think there's a great opportunity, potential for people to be misled here. And the third final thing I wanted to say was um, he and others went around the countryside for the last two years holding rallies, stirring people up. Um, and now, at the last minute, uh, he, he is, they feel they've been badly let down, having been encouraged to come out in the freezing cold, some cases to oppose mm. these measures, 
they now uh, find that he's had to go back with his tail between his legs. And I mean, that's the reality. However, uh, I hope unionism learns a lesson. It's been a humiliating experience for many. And the lesson is that you cannot uh, send uh, 100% unionist representation to Westminster from the DUP because they messed it up. Well, Lord MP... Donaldson said it's a good outcome. He acknowledges his party didn't achieve everything they wanted in the talks with Westminster, but says last night represented a, quote, decisive moment for the DUP. What do you think the party could conceivably have got as a concession? Well, first of all, they should never have left the government because anything that is coming up now is changes to internal UK legislation which they could have negotiated from within the government and I think far more effectively as ministers. Um, so they've led us around this chaos for over for two years and there's nothing really of substance to show for it because the fundamental framework uh, of the Windsor framework, the border in the Irish Sea, the Czechs, uh, the um, fact that EU laws will still apply to Northern Ireland and the EU court will still have a role here, none of that has changed. And anybody who knew anything about Westminster and about Brussels would know, would have known that that wasn't going to change in, in that sort of timescale. The next opportunity to make changes in 2025, when the trade and cooperation agreement with the European Union is to be uh, reviewed between the UK government and the EU, that's the opportunity. And they should have been working and preparing for that instead of leading people up the garden path into believing that they were going to push over Uh, an international agreement signed between the UK and the EU, ratified by over 95% of parliamentarians in both houses, and they set an impossible task for themselves. And uh, we've now reached the stage where even the diehards in there realised that they couldn't continue with it anymore. So I welcome the fact, and it's positive, that we're moving to a different phase, but it was entirely avoidable, I have to say. Has Jeffrey Donaldson's position been been weakened by all of this? I mean, he's not going to be Deputy First Minister because he's not an MLA, but his party is is going back into government as Deputy First Minister. So Michelle O'Neill will be First Minister, which is a first in the history of power sharing as well, that it's someone from uh, from the Nationalist Republican tradition who will do so. Is that is that a, a milestone for unionism in your view? Well, it is a milestone, uh, but of course the irony of it all is this... Um, the rules about first and deputy first minister are not the rules that we negotiated in the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. They were changed at the behest of the DUP in uh, at St Andrews, and uh, that would have been in 2006. And the irony is, the change that they made and forced the government to make was about First Minister. And uh, had the rules remained as we had negotiated them in 1998 and ratified by the referenda, uh, Geoffrey Donaldson would have been eligible to be First Minister. So you couldn't make some of this up. But the reality is that the DUP rules that were applied uh, after St Andrews has resulted in Michelle O'Neill... qualifying to be First Minister, and that will be the case. Now, Sir Geoffrey could theoretically uh, put himself back into Stormont because he's the nominating officer of their party, and he could become First Minister if he, or Second Deputy First Minister if he wanted, 
however, that would create a by-election in this constituency, and I think he'd probably not be too happy to have that as an option at the moment. So given all that's happened in the past few years, is it time to reform Stormont to change how power sharing works? Well, that's a difficult one because people need to understand that it was an all-party agreement. It's not an agreement that the government negotiated. It was negotiated between the parties. And the government has interfered with it uh, to its detriment. And what we've seen in the last two years, just as we saw in the three-year period that Sinn Féin was uh, holding out, was that the government works on the principle that the crying baby gets the bottle. And they negotiate entirely secretly with one one, one party. Now, if we had have done that, we'd never have got the Good Friday Agreement. The reason why the Good Friday Agreement worked and was ratified by the people was because all the parties had ownership of it. And in this particular case, the government has kept this secret negotiation going for two years and the other parties have not been engaged. That's the mistake. So irrespective of what technicality you decided to change, it has to be negotiated by the parties. But I would urge people not to start messing around with it anymore at the moment. We've only, we're only just coming out of a two-year period where we've had no government. We could end up spending years arguing the toss over bits and pieces of change. I think the priority is to get the institutions going, start to deliver something positive for the people after a period not only of COVID, but huge increases in the cost of living. There's a lot of distress out there. There's a lot of people waiting on, on uh, trolleys and hospitals. The situation is, is dire. And to start diverting people's attention uh, onto changing about the technicalities of storm, I think would be a mistake at this stage. And the former uh, Irish Taoiseach, Bertie O'Hearn, came to Stormont last April for the 25th anniversary, and he made a speech in the Assembly where he said exactly that. And I, I, I endorse that. I think it would be the wrong time. Let's get the government going. Let's start delivering for people and making positive changes in their lives. We can have plenty of time to negotiate the minutiae in the future. Okay, Lord Dredge, MP, former leader of the Ulster Unionist Party. Thank you very much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. So we'll await the terms of the deal on the future of the Northern Ireland Assembly. But let's return now to the story of the year in UK politics, which is, of course, the general election. And Bloomberg's been analysing Britain's new electoral map after all the recent revisions of constituency boundaries to assess the key places that Labour needs to win in order to secure a majority. Our safe, self-styled data nerd Eamon Farhat joins us now for more because, Eamon, you've drawn up this data piece, uh, analysing why these revisions are so important. Just talk us through it. Yeah, so as you said, new boundaries every maybe about 10 years because of changes in population in the UK, you have to kind of readjust boundaries. I mean, an example this time is like the Isle of Wight now will have two constituencies, two constituencies instead of one. And across the UK, there's many examples of this. Um, now, with this new release that we've gotten um, this month, we now know basically what are the most winnable seats for Labour. We now know basically the state of play going into the next general election. And what we've done in this analysis is we've taken the 125 most winnable seats for Labour. Now, this is the minimum number that they need to actually get into power, obviously, in the UK you know, with first path the post, you need to get just a, just a majority, you know, in all these individual seats, and then you get yourself into number 10. And we've looked at those seats and looked at the different demographics. So we've basically found what does the age demographics, what do ethnicity demographics, and so on look like across these seats. And the results are quite interesting. 
So to get to number 10, Keir Starmer is going to have to win a lot of seats and, and flip ones because the last election left Labour with its fewest number of seats since 1935. But that means energising not just the regular Labour voting base, but also ousting many incumbents in, in, in constituencies. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Labour will have to win kind of a historic win to try and get into number 10. This new data shows us that they would have to have a swing of about 12.7%, which doesn't sound that big when you think about the lead that they have in the polls. But as you said, in some seats, that's much more difficult. You know, they have to oust, in some cases, Tory MPs who have been in place for maybe 20 years, people who haven't voted Labour, you know, for... Yeah, you know, decades, basically. Obviously, in some other places, you know, there are some seats that which in 2019 fell to the Conservatives and now are expected to come back to the Labour Party. But I think what's really clear from this is that, you know, we do talk a lot about Scotland, about the North, but actually Keir Starmer has to be winning seats across the country, London, South, Wales, North, you know, really everywhere to be trying to get a consistent path into number 10. So what are the conclusions that your map reaches that you would put to Keir Starmer if you were his advisor? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because when I spoke to some of the academics, um, some of the pollsters, they did make that point that the people that he has to target, whether it be age, ethnicity, you know, how many homeowners, they're much more representative of kind of the average British person, you know, when you look at those, those demographics. And in the past, Labour does very well in, you know, urban areas, you know, maybe a slightly higher level of education. And the kind of maybe used to winning in these places. Now, if they have to push out and win in these new areas, you know, they've got to think about policy, they've got to think about the campaigning issues. But at the same time, they don't want to alienate their base because that can also cause issues. The Conservatives are very aware of this. and I think that's why they would love to make this election more about immigration because that would kind of play into their hands. But if things kind of keep going and and the, the main issues are the economy, cost of living and all that, because these things kind of Go across all demographics, it means that it's a bit easier for Keir Starmer. But again, if they if the debate changes and the issues change very quickly, that polling lead, you know, the polling individual constituencies could shift very quickly and make things more difficult for yeah, Keir Starmer. And look, ultimately, all politics is local, right? Like people to vote for the person they know sometimes without necessarily looking at the party either. Is is when you look at your map, is it essentially just a guide to where the Tories are most vulnerable? Yeah, yeah. Basically, this is a guide. I'd say to where the Tories are most vulnerable, and obviously, you know, SNP in Scotland, and really the places where. These are kind of places where, you know, if on election night, Keir Starmer isn't, you know, picking up votes here, that means he's probably in trouble because these are really the minimum. Again, this is to get a majority of one. You know, I think mm-hmm. he wants more than a majority of one, obviously. And so we'll be these... sitting with a checklist, essentially, on election night <laughs> saying that's that one, Basically, that's that one. And some of these places, when you look at it, I mean, it's interactive. Um, you can see, you know, there's a 20% swing, you know, that you, that you need to overcome, which is kind of huge if this is a minimum. But that also, you know, demonstrates the situation that Labour was in at the end of the 2019 election, where, you know, they did lose so many, so many votes. So, yeah, the challenge really is there. And although, again, the polling really shows that, you know, Labour is going to get this landslide, when you do talk to academics, you talk to pollsters, they do say that you know, there is such thing as a polling error. Things can change quite quickly and it's very quickly. You can go from this landslide victory to much slimmer majority or even a minority government. Like it's not really out of the question and things can change quickly. And again, the challenge is huge. So let's assume that Keir Starmer is a data nerd and that he's also so cynical that he will write his policy based on the demographics of these 125 constituencies. What does he need to do to flip these seats? Yes, I mean, the, the people that kind of came out from this analysis, it showed that Kirsten would have to target older voters, basically. So you think about some of the things, you know, maybe about pensions. They're obviously a bit less 
interested in some of the, you know, when we talk about kind of London and you know, younger voters, you know, that isn't really the target demographic that he'll have to get in Wales in the north. There's also more homeowners, which is quite interesting, also more outright homeowners, which basically means that a lot of the things around mortgage rates and the economy, which mm. you know, do matter, will actually matter less to these people, which I think is maybe something interesting to, to watch. Definitely a high proportion of white voters in these seats, actually double the proportion of white voters in these seats, which, you know, when I talk to academics, this could be a reason why the Conservatives are trying to focus more on immigration because that's something that some of these voters in more rural areas areas care about more. And that's the other one is, you know, that Labour does very well in urban areas. And here on this analysis, we show that it's a bit more rural, a bit more towny, the seat that Labour has to has to target. And this is also kind of a proxy for Brexit voting in the past. We've seen that in the more urban areas, there was obviously a very strong Remain vote. So you know, when you talk about rural urban, it's sometimes talking about Brexit without really talking about Brexit. I wonder if, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure people in party headquarters are poring over the details of this analysis today. It, what would Conservative Party headquarters be taking away from this if they were looking at your map? Is this a list of places that they need to work a lot harder? Yeah, I mean, at this end of the day, you know, as because of the UK electoral system, you know, you almost just have to focus on the battleground seats, you know, to try and flip and get that majority, you know. And if the Conservatives can maybe hold on to a suede of seats, if the SNP do really better in Scotland, you know, very quickly that path for Labour becomes much more difficult. I think, you know, in Conservative um, TCHQ, they will probably be thinking about those big, you know, suede of seats that have still quite high margins where, you know, local issues, as you said, do matter, where maybe if they could push more on immigration, if they can change the narrative, or if they can show that, you know, the economy is improving, you know, um, I saw today, like, you know, um, um, inflation in shops fell to this lowest level in two years, you know, Mm. that economic um, improvement really comes down to people's actual pockets, then they might start thinking that actually, you know, we could stick with what's still around. And again, as you said, it's all about local issues because it is really in many parts of the country a huge swing still that Labour has to overcome. Okay, Eamon Farhat, thanks for crunching the numbers for us. It's definitely worth a read that piece. The graphics are incredible. Our reporter Eamon Farhat, thank you. I think Eamon has a career in describing things that you're looking at um, to be able to, we could get you actually the weather at some stage, Eamon, as well. It'd be great. You could describe the map uh, to us. That's Eamon Farhat there. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.